Section 18 of The Sainted Queens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sainted Queens by Unknown. St. Bathildis, Chapter 2. Bathilds is Regent. Her humane acts. Her convents. She resigns and retires. Chelles dies reflections as was usual on the death of a frank king one of the sons of clovis succeeded to the crown of neustria and of burgundy with the title of clotaire the third his brother childeric the first became king of austrasia while siri the youngest of the late king's sons had to wait for fifteen years till the death of his brother clotaire opened up for him the succession to neustria and burgundy the regency of her son Clotaire's share of the kingdom was held by his mother Bathildis, assisted by Erchinald, the mayor of the palace, her old master. For a time all went well. The queen studied the advantage of her people in every possible way. She extinguished a poll tax which had been so rigorously levied as to tempt poor fathers of families to destroy their children rather than incur the penalty incident to rearing a numerous family of contributors to the odious tax like saint margaret of scotland also bathildis took much to heart the abuses which had crept into religion and she engaged the bishops to extirpate the plague of simony which threatened to eat into the heart of the frank church the queen was a munificent friend to the religious houses of her kingdom in particular she founded two out of her own private property one of them at corby near amiens and the other at shelley's near paris on the river marne when saint eloy gave up his holy soul to god six hundred fifty nine at noyon the queen went to see his remains and spared no pains to secure them as relics of a saint for her convent at shelley's the inhabitants of the town were equally desirous to keep them to themselves, and the queen eventually waived her claim. To the redemption of slaves taken in war, Queen Bathildis especially devoted herself, with the liberality of one who had herself known the sorrows of a captive in an enemy's land. While prisoners of war were every day sold for the benefit of their captors, the queen was a constant purchaser, more particularly when her unhappy countrymen and countrywomen were offered for sale. Her edicts against the barbarous practice do not seem to have been much attended to. But troubles now began to gather round our queen. Erchinald was no longer mayor of the palace, and the ambitious and impracticable policy of his successor, Ebroin, involved the government in serious disputes with the nobles and the clergy of Neustria. The new mayor was unscrupulous as he was daring. If a bishop presumed to question his designs, the mitre was no protection against the vengeance of Ebroin. Anemond, bishop of Lyons, perished in this way, and to aggravate the crime, the mayor pretended that he had the authority of the queen for what he had done. This was not the only instance in which he attempted to compromise his royal mistress, who, feeling herself no match for her chamberlain, could only resign the regency 
and retire altogether from public life. 665. She bade adieu to her consulars, forgiving those who had injured her, and asking the forgiveness of all for herself in return, and sought a home among her nuns at Chelles. Here her habitual humility again found full scope. She submitted to the abbess as to a mother, and the sisters she regarded as her equals, or even as her superiors. For there was no duty in the house low enough or menial enough to satisfy her. She served them at their meals, and she served them in the scullery, but her favorite post of service was the infirmary. She had learned her novitiate of charity, while she was the slave of divine providence. Now she perfected herself in it as the slave of the love of Jesus. Her habit of prayer, her gift of tears, followed her to Chelles, and were the crown of her holy life, as they had been its chief support. The last fifteen years of her life were passed in this peaceful retirement. At length the end began to draw near. Her health declined, and she suffered acute pain. Yet so complete was the training of this holy woman in the school of suffering, that she made her very infirmities a subject of thanksgiving to the Lord. Shortly before her departure to eternal life, she had a vision similar to the dream of the patriarch Jacob. She beheld a ladder erected before the altar of the Blessed Virgin. Its summit was lost in heaven, and the angels of God were waiting to accompany herself in her ascent to paradise. She gathered from it an intimation that the hour of her deliverance was at hand. She seems to have confided her vision to a few persons only, and to have begged that it might be kept secret from the good abbess and her nuns, knowing the grief that such an intimation would occasion them. Neither was her humility willing to make a boast of the assurance of her heavenly reward with which she had been favoured. She applied herself more assiduously than ever to prayer, waiting from day to day, with great humility and contrition of heart, the pleasure of her gracious Lord. A young godchild of hers, aged six years, was invited by the saint to accompany her to heaven, and took leave of the world that short time before herself. Finally, the saint, resigning her soul into the protection of Jesus, with her eyes and her hands raised to heaven, departed in great peace, January 30, 680. A supernatural light is said to have pervaded her chamber at the moment of her passage. Few persons were aware of it, so well had been her secret kept. The grief of her nuns was great, in proportion to its suddenness, on hearing that their treasure, for so they regarded her, had been taken from them. Commending her precious soul with many tears to their heavenly master, they buried their beloved friend with great reverence and honor. Her contemporary biographer sums up her character in few words, as a striking example of the union of humility with wisdom, of meekness and amiability, and even excessive compassion, with the most vigilant prudence, and delicacy the most pure. All her actions were the fruit, not of impulse, but of well-concerted method. A succession of miraculous cures at her tomb attested the stamp of approbation which Almighty God had put on her life and her holy death. 
Her remains were long preserved as relics at Chelles, and a part of them at Corby. A hundred and fifty years after her death, they were translated into a more distinguished shrine. Distance of time makes events, which in their day seemed long separated, appear as if they were almost coincident. Distance of place has a similar effect on objects of vision. Two stars, millions, perhaps billions of miles apart, shall seem as if they shone together as one, if you only recede far enough away from them. We read on one page of our saint's trials as a slave, on the next of her trials as a queen. A page or two further on, we come to the end of all her trials, and the commencement of her reward. Doubtless as she regards all these events now, from her seat of bliss in heaven, they must appear as transient, as virtually coincident, as they do to us in reading of them, twelve centuries after their occurrence. But they were by no means so closely united, while they were actually and slowly passing. Each day of slavery, of separation from her native land, seemed as long to her, then, as any day of suffering still seems to us now. Faith and hope alone can thus bring the beginning and the end together, and so blend the endurance of the conflict with the enjoyment of the crown, as to make the heaviest trials appear light, and the longest but for a moment, even while they are actually weighing on the human spirit. This is an important lesson, resulting especially from the study of the lives of saints, who were, more remarkably than others, made perfect through suffering. End of chapter 2 of St. Bathildis End of section 18